lighter note now. I just want to share a story with you guys. When I was in high school, uh, one of my friends' names was Tom, and he had this beautiful white, like pearl white, 1990 Mustang GT 5.0. At the time, I thought it was the coolest car ever. Um, And so I used to ride with Tom to baseball practice every day after school, and that was not the baseball practice, but the ride in the Mustang was pretty much the highlight of my day. And the thing was so loud that you pretty much had to yell to each other to have a conversation. But it was just so awesome to be in that car. And as the kids say these days, it was lit to be in that thing. Like, But what good is a Mustang GT if you don't have a little fun with it? Am I right? Right? And so my friend Tom was a little bit of a daredevil. And, you know, when there's a parking lot full of teenage guys and you're in a Mustang GT with a 5.0 V8, what do you do? Yeah, you light it up, right? Tom was the burnout king. Any chance he got, yeah, that's it. That, that's almost the exact car that he had, except the hood was a little different. But that was it. Every chance that he got, the tires were squealing and the smoke was flying. And to be in that car when that was happening was surreal. And we didn't have Instagram back then, believe it or not. I'm not that old, but there was no Instagram. But every Monday, he would come into school with his little flip phone, and all the guys would be gathered around, and he'd show us these videos on this little flip phone of his tires squealing, and the smoke was so thick you couldn't even see the car hardly like that. And so it was pretty awesome. And I don't know about you, but does anybody know the smell of premium fuel exhaust mixed with burning rubber like that's an iconic smell that you just remember for your whole life and that was that was the experience with Tom and his Mustang but now that I'm older like even last night as I'm working on the message for today I hear the tires squealing I hear the cars roaring up and down the boulevard and you know you see the tire tracks the next day you see the news stories from all the burnouts and all the donuts and to be honest It just doesn't have the same cool factor to me anymore because now that I'm a dad, I just think about all the dollars that are being burned, right? You hear the the engine roaring, pushing the red line. You hear the tires squealing. They're just melting into dollar bills, right? Like, they're just burning away. And it's in those moments where the car is working really hard, it's being pushed to the limit, and it's literally going nowhere, and it's accomplishing nothing, right? It is this very same phenomenon that psychologists in the 1970s started to notice in people. Herbert Freudenberger, I don't know if you guys know that name, he was the first person to use the term burnout in reference to the set of symptoms that arise when chronic stress goes unmanaged. And so the World Health Organization describes burnout very narrowly, not as a medical condition, but as an occupational phenomenon, which has three dimensions. And here's how they define it. Feelings of exhaustion, increased mental distance or feelings of cynicism related to your job, and reduced professional efficacy. Now, even though who and 
you know, whatever your opinion is on who after the last two years, I don't know. But even though they don't define it as a medical condition, the reality is that unmanaged chronic stress over time does often lead to actual medical conditions as we try to cope with that stress in all sorts of different ways. And so God has graciously given humans the ability to respond to stressors, right? He's given us the biochemistry to turn stress into motivation to perform. Think about all the greatest athletes, right? They're in a game, big moment. I'm a little heartbroken about Villanova last night. They didn't have these moments, but you have these athletes where the pressure is on and it motivates them to perform. Or think about military heroes, first responders. You have these people putting it themselves in stressful situations that motivates them to save lives and to rescue people. Even something like a project deadline in the office can be a stressor that pushes you in a way that's motivating to get something done. But the problem of burnout arises when the pressures, when the stressors are not counterbalanced with rest and relief. When the pressure just continues mounting, picture uh, an arch like this. When the pressure keeps mounting and mounting and mounting, eventually your productivity and your motivation begins to drop, and before long, it's free-falling if the pressure is too much. And what happens when you spiral down into that burnout, your motivation drops, what happens is you are effectively sidelined and you can't do anything at all. You feel unable to do anything, you don't wanna do anything, especially not the thing that you have been doing for so long and so hard. That is the reality of burnout. And now, with that being said, I wanna take you back to week two of this sermon series where we talked about the Christian life as being one of much serving. Remember that? We talked about the Christian life as one where we are busy laboring on behalf of Christ. And we're doing much serving, not the distracted kind, but the kind that Jesus calls us to. It's a life of total sacrifice that requires continual labor and toil, even into hardship and suffering. Now here's the question for today. If ongoing stress and hardship lead to burnout, and the Christian life is a call to ongoing hardship and toil, how do we serve Jesus well without burning out? That's our question for today. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look just at the first two verses of Romans 12. And this, hopefully, is a familiar passage to you. But I want to encourage you, don't let the familiarity of this passage stop you from hearing the Lord's heart for you, right? Familiarity often breeds contempt, right? Don't let familiarity with Scripture breed contempt for it, okay? You want to hear the Lord's heart from this passage this morning. I'm going to read for, uh, for you guys Romans Chapter 12, just the first two verses. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, I want to pray right now that by your spirit we would uh, hear your heart through the words of this text, Lord. When it comes to the burdens of life pressing down on us, when it comes to the call of discipleship, Lord, would you help us to hear your heart from this passage and to know your grace? So, Lord, please come by your spirit and open our ears and our hearts to what you want us to know about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the dominant biblical themes, I hope this is review for you guys. As you look through the pages of Genesis all the way through Revelation, is that of sacrifice. Even in the very first few chapters of Genesis, we read of an animal sacrifice taking place to cover guilt and shame and to pay the price for sin. And now that theme of sacrifice is developed through the first few books of the Old Testament, the Torah, as the Lord establishes a sacrificial system where priests would continually offer animal sacrifices on behalf of the people as the atonement for their sins. Now, to state it simply, the forgiveness of sins hinged upon an innocent lamb giving up its life for a guilty person. By the very nature of that act, it is all or nothing. There is no partial death, right? It's all or nothing. The former thing stopped living so the latter could continue living. You guys catch that? Now, as you know, the system of animal sacrifice established in Leviticus continued for centuries, and it all came to a climax when Jesus, the sinless lamb, gave up his life as a ransom for sinners. I know you guys have heard this, but hang in there. Just as we sang, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? All the blood of goats and calves and bulls and heifers, this is from Hebrews 9, was foreshadowing that precious blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The ultimate sacrifice was accomplished once and for all at the end of the age when Jesus came to put away the sins of many by the sacrifice of himself. Whew, Hebrews 9 is loaded with good stuff. And what you see there is one innocent lamb giving up his life for guilty persons. And so even though Jesus knew the final and unique nature of his sacrifice, before he went to the cross, he was teaching his followers that they too were going to need to sacrifice themselves. And it wasn't that they would be a sacrifice for atoning of sins as he was, but it was a life of self-sacrifice that followed the pattern of his ministry. I found an article from this old journal called The Biblical World. This was published in 1903. And it says this about Jesus' teaching on self-sacrifice. 
It says, nothing is more characteristic of the teaching of Jesus than his insistence upon the duty of self-sacrifice. Again and again, he goes back to the same thought that a man must lose his life to gain his life, that no man can be his disciple unless he deny himself, take up his cross, and follow him, that no man can serve two masters. And it's precisely that teaching of Jesus that Paul is picking up here in Romans 12. The entire book of Romans, up until this point, has been the story that tells of God's incredible mercy and grace that is demonstrated by Jesus' ultimate sacrifice. And it's that sacrifice, again, you guys know this, but i got to say it, it's that sacrifice through which, by faith, you are justified and restored to your Father. It's because of that ultimate sacrifice that you're able to come home like the lost son and be welcomed with a ring and a robe. It's all with that context of sacrifice in mind that Paul says here in verse 1, I appeal to you, I exhort you, I urge you, therefore, by those mercies of God to present your body as a sacrifice. You see that? It's the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus that enables and compels us to become a sacrifice, not for atonement, but in worshipful service to the living God. Jesus calls us, he calls you, to a life of sacrifice. If anyone would save his life, he must lose it for my sake. Now, to get to our question for the day, I want to consider from this text three specific aspects of that sacrifice that Jesus requires of us. When you think about the Old Testament system of sacrifice, think about all those animals and all those priests, it's just death. Death after death after death, blood being splattered everywhere. It's gruesome. It is death. Sin brought death again and again and again. Yet what is so distinct and so powerful and unique about Jesus' sacrifice is that while every other sacrifice ended with the thing being sacrificed not existing anymore, Jesus' sacrifice is the thing that undid the effects of death, right? It reversed death. That's what's so unique about it. It was a sacrifice that ended not in death, but in resurrection life. And he alone is the resurrection and the life who enables us to follow his pattern of sacrifice that also leads not to the end of ourselves, but actually to life. All right, so look back at verse 1 with me. Jesus is calling you to present your body, your very own self, flesh and bone and spirit, up onto the altar as the thing being sacrificed. Now, it's really notable that Paul uses the word body here. He could have just said sacrifice yourself, but he says sacrifice your body. Now, why does he do that? On the one hand, he uses the word body 
to give us the picture of the actual sacrifice taking place where your body is the one being laid on the altar, it's meant to capture the force of that image, right? Present your body to be sacrificed. But notice, he also says that you need to present your body as a living sacrifice. When you put those two words together, body and living, it's clarifying for us that our sacrifice is to be one of physical action, not just spiritual allegory, not just a metaphor. This is actually to be physical action carried out in the world here and now by your body. The physical body is the tool created by God to do his stuff in the world, right? It's also the tool that we have improperly used to do the opposite of what we were made to do. But remember, we're created as a union of physical and spiritual, and it's the physical that literally fleshes out the spiritual reality within. And so to present your body as a living sacrifice then is to put off the former self with all of its sinful actions and to take physical action the right way in resurrection life, as Hebrews 9 says, in service to the living God. The whole point of resurrection life is that it doesn't end. The call to be a living sacrifice is a call to serve the Lord with your whole self, both in soul and in body, physical and spiritual, here and now and on into eternity. This is a call to a life of sustained sacrifice. Now, just like the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, and just like the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, Paul goes on to say, look at the end of verse 1. He says that our self-sacrifice must be holy and acceptable to God. Now again, this is review, but bear with me because it's just so important to say. Without being justified in Christ... We are not holy and acceptable to God, right? You guys believe that? You agree with that? We're on the same page? Without being justified, you're not holy and acceptable. And so nothing that we do in the name of the Lord, without having first been regenerated and washed by the Spirit, it won't be holy and acceptable to the Lord. That's Romans 8, remember? The works of the flesh, the works of the Spirit. Without being justified, it's not holy, so, on the one hand, our sacrifice is only acceptable through what Christ accomplished as he declares us righteous when we come to him in faith and we're born again, right? But if you're a born-again follower of Jesus, you've already been regenerated and declared righteous, then to uh, be a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to the Lord also means that in the ongoing daily physical aspect of serving the Lord, you must actually be holy. Like on one hand, Christ declares you holy, and on the other hand, we have to actually be holy in our lives. Do you catch that? This is a call to live your life in a way that is distinct from your former self. It's noticeably set apart from the world around you. And so Paul goes on, 
even in verse 2, to expand on this. Take a look at verse 2. He says, Holy and acceptable to the Lord, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The call to actually be holy is attended by God actually working in us to transform us. To be a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable is to be a person that is set apart from the world because the Lord has transformed you into his image more and more. And this is the process that we call sanctification. Have you guys heard that word? Yeah? All right. That's sanctification. We obey in faith, living a holy life, and God transforms us as we obey in faith. He is the one renewing and transforming. Now look at the end of verse 2. It's this process of sanctification that strengthens and develops our ability to discern what God's will is. He says in verse 2, so that by testing you may discern, some Bibles may say approve, what is the will of God. Eternal life, by Jesus' own definition in John 17, 3, is that simply we know God. That is eternal life, that we know God. And as our spiritual discernment of God's will grows, what's happening is we're not just learning behaviors. Like, my dog can learn behaviors. We're not just learning behaviors. We're actually growing in our knowledge of God himself, which is eternal life. The renewal of our minds by the Spirit as we walk with him in obedience as a living sacrifice is the process by which those who formerly didn't know God, who actually hated him, begin to come to know his will more and more, but not just in mind, in a way that actually is fleshed out in their body, right? They come to know the will of the Lord so they can do the will of the Lord. We're called to continually present ourselves as a holy and acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. This is a call of a, to a life of sustained and sanctified sacrifice. Now, there's one more phrase in verse 1 that we got to go back to. Go ahead and look at verse 1 again with me. Paul says, present your bodies as a sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And here it is, which is your spiritual worship. Now, depending on which Bible translation you have, it might say rational or reasonable service. My Bible says spiritual worship. And Paul's actually using a word here that is somewhat ambiguous to leave it open-ended. But here's the point of what he's getting at. Whether you take it spiritual, rational, reasonable, in any case, Paul's getting at the immaterial part of us. He's getting at the heart level the mind level, the part of us that is uh, where the will and emotions live. Spiritual worship from the heart, check this out, is to continually offer your body as a living sacrifice to do God's will in the world. Hear that again. Spiritual worship from the heart is to offer your body to do his will. This isn't just like 
sporadically coming to church or reading the Bible here or there or praying once in a while. We're talking about a lifestyle of doing God's will, like a lifestyle of bandaging the broken and washing filthy feet, loving your enemies, forgiving the unforgivable, praying for those who persecute you, proclaiming and demonstrating God's kingdom in the world. That is the type of stuff that God calls us to be doing as our spiritual worship. Without the outward expression, the inward worship is undeveloped. And without the outward, or without the inward worship, any outward expression is premature. Does that make sense? Yeah, no? Without the outward expression of what's happening in our heart, your worship is undeveloped. Without the inward heart worship taking place, any outward expression is premature. Remember, we're body and spirit, and God has intended for inner spiritual realities to be demonstrated outwardly by the flesh. John Stott says it this way, Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. Hear that? Presentation of bodies is spiritual worship. It's a significant Christian paradox that no worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward and abstract and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service performed by our bodies. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship him in spirit and truth by knowing what God is like and by showing what God is like. He's calling you to a life of sustained sacrifice that is sanctified and is spiritual. It consumes body and soul over time. Now, the cost of discipleship based upon that is high, right? That is a lot. That is a high demand from the Lord. Here's the whole passage in a nutshell. Jesus demands that your whole self be sacrificed continually over and over again, over time, through a lifestyle of service that increasingly does his will in the world. That's the passage in a nutshell. And if you take that at face value and you just hear that, that sounds like the type of labor that leads to burnout like ongoing sacrifice. I'm just being killed again and again and again. I'm just serving again and again and again. It sounds like it's crushing, doesn't it? Yeah. But back to our question for the day, how are we supposed to do that if this is what we're called to without being burned out and throwing in the towel? This is where we're going to land the plane, so bear with me here for a few minutes. The sad reality is that far too many Christians are reaching the point of burnout. They're calling it quits. They're dropping their responsibilities in the church. They're leaving the jo their jobs. They're even leaving the faith altogether. Even prominent Christian leaders are burning out and forsaking the gospel. Like, it happens again and again and again because the storms of life are rising, the pressures are pushing down on them, and they're not balancing it with the type of rest that they need that is grounded upon the words of Jesus. 
And so when the storms arise, their houses crumble into the sand. Now there's many more who might not even be aware of the fact that they are burned out. Because we all are unique. We all handle pressure differently. And let me just say this. There are many people who reach a point of burnout that is very noticeable, it's very external, and they're actually doing all the right things spiritually. Like, people who are, who are living a healthy spiritual life can still be burned out. And there are people who may not be noticeably burned out who are very unhealthy spiritually because we all are wired to handle these situations differently, right? Yet, even if we don't notice burnout in the same way that others might, you may still be burned out and not even aware of it. What happens when you reach that point of burnout is you just begin drifting down the stream. You're not motivated to do anything, and you just start getting farther and farther and farther away from the Lord's will for your life. And before you realize it, you're a mile off coast, right? You guys ever sat in a raft on the beach and you start drifting out? If you are not grounded in the will of the Lord and you reach this point of burnout, you could drift so far from where the Lord wants you. Now, all of this talk of sacrifice, sacrifice, serve, toil, labor, seemingly without end, it sounds exhausting and it sounds like Jesus is demanding too much from us. It sounds like he's actually setting us up for burnout. But that's not who Jesus is. Amen? That is not who he is. He is gentle and lowly in heart. He promises to give rest to those who come to him. He promises to lift the burdens, right? Not to push them down, but to lift them. So the lifestyle of Jesus that brings true rest is the lifestyle of sacrifice. It seems counterintuitive, but that's the truth of Scripture. The life that brings true rest for your soul is a life of self-sacrifice. Now, let me ask you guys, are you tired? Are you bearing a heavy load? Are you on the precipice ready to crash and burn? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Have you already been burned out and sat yourself down at the end of the bench, sidelined from the work of the ministry? Here's the truth that I want to leave with you today. You ready for it? We have a God who actually strengthens his people. Amen? He actually gives grace to help in your time of need, and that's a promise, not a possibility. Listen to Exodus 15.2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has given me victory. Psalm 29, 11, the Lord gives strength to his people. Isaiah 40, 31, those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. 2 Timothy 4, 17, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be proclaimed, and I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Colossians 1, 11, we have not ceased praying for you, that you would bear fruit in every good work and be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. In Philippians 4.13, I can endure all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
It is exactly because we are weak and dependent by design that Christ calls you to a life of sacrifice. Because it's his strength that's revealed through only your weakness. We labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need your power is displayed. But here's the catch. God gives strength and grace to help in your time of need, but you first of all have to come to his throne and boldly ask for it, and then you have to actually receive the grace that he offers. Certainly, God can bring strength and grace and breakthrough in any moment, in any circumstance, through any means, because he's the God of miracles, right? But those situations are what what we call miracles, right? Like God just acting out of nowhere when we least expect it to give us that breakthrough and that victory. Those are miracles, and certainly God can do them, and he can give you strength and grace in that way, and he does. But he has also given us ordinary means through which he regularly gives his grace, and he has actually rigged the system so that we can receive that grace at any time, whenever we need it, by partaking in those means. You guys know that? Like, he has rigged the system to help you. That is amazing. His grace is always available through these ordinary means. And historically, the church has recognized these means of grace as the word of God revealed in scripture, the prayer through which we have communion with God, and the gathering of the church where the sacraments are administered and the word is preached and prayers are lifted up. Those are the ordinary means that God uses to bring grace to you. Those things, as uh, some of you might have read this email, as our friend Tim Kerr says, those means of grace are like the spoon that carries the tasty food to your mouth. They are the instruments by which we receive God's grace. There's an article from uh, Table Talk magazine which describes the means of grace in this way. It says, we must acknowledge that God has appointed certain means for that growth, and we should approach these means with eager anticipation and childlike reliance on the one who adds his blessing to them, and we must rest content in a right use of them knowing that God has promised to bless them as we use them with repentant and believing hearts. He's promised to bless them when we use them. You hear that? We have to receive the grace that he offers. Yet there's more. Flowing out of those primary means of grace is a whole safety net with a bunch of other means of grace. When we look into scripture, like this is the primary means of grace where we learn everything about God. And so when we look into this means of grace, we examine the life of Jesus and his followers, we begin to see this whole safety net of these practices that are other ways that God brings grace to us. And specifically, those things include the spiritual gifts and the spiritual disciplines. Now for the last few weeks, We've been talking about spiritual disciplines of rest. 
And those disciplines of rest are all about getting you before the throne to receive the grace that you need so that you're empowered by God to continue being a sacrifice that is sustained over time, that is sanctified from the world, and that is spiritual in pure worship. The discipline of Sabbath, it's all about giving you consistent time week in and week out where you're delighting in the Lord, where you're receiving his grace to endure as a sustained sacrifice. The discipline of solitude, it's like a mini Sabbath throughout the week from day to day, moment by moment. We're shutting out the noise of the world and we're getting before the Lord to hear from him. Remember, it's the word of the Lord that brings his grace to us. So the discipline of solitude is to get away from the other stuff, to get to his word, and to offer up prayers to him where we receive fresh grace. The discipline of simplicity, it's all about stripping away the unnecessary so that we're avoiding conformity to the world and stepping into being transformed by dependence upon God's spirit. And that dependence Again, it works out our sanctification, right? As we're trusting in the Lord and not in our material possessions, he is transforming us and giving us grace and renewal. The discipline of slowing, it's all about giving up your need to be somewhere quickly so that you might wait upon the Lord for his guidance to know his will for that moment. It's slowing down to listen to the Lord's will. Again, when we hear the word of the Lord and we do it, that's when he meets us with grace. And so these rhythms that we've talked about over the last few weeks, they are small acts of sacrifice that when we carry them out consistently over time, they become habits of sacrifice. And when those habits of sacrifice continue over time, it develops a character of sacrifice that looks like Jesus. And all the while, those disciplines, those means of grace, like going into silence before the Lord during part of your day, that is a physical act of sacrifice. You're giving up other things to have the Lord. And what happens when you make that sacrifice is it prepares you to be the sacrifice. You catch that? We sacrifice smaller things to prepare us to be the bigger sacrifice. So when we receive that grace from the Lord, we then are empowered to step out in sacrificial love and service to others. And we're not going to step out into those moments if we're not driven by his grace. If we're just depending on the flesh, I've said it before, I'll say it again. If it's, if it's all about the flesh and what I want to do, I wouldn't be standing here. Like, we need to be filled up with God's grace to push us into those moments and sustain us through them with endurance and joy. Now, if you haven't already begun, will you give yourselves to these means of grace, the primary ones, the word of God, prayer, and the church? Beyond the primary means, will you give yourself to the disciplines of rest that prepare us to be sacrificed over and over and over for a lifetime of service that brings glory to God. Would you guys pray with me?
Lord, you know, my heart for our church family is that we would be filled up with that grace. Lord, you, you offer it continually. It's always accessible. But Lord, my prayer is that we would be so childlike and so eager to run to your throne and receive those gifts of grace. And so, Lord, I pray even now as we kind of th- kind of think back on our on our sermon series and we and we look ahead in the upcoming weeks to a new series. Lord, I pray that we would give ourselves physically to the spiritual disciplines, Lord, that we would be just coming before your throne to receive the grace, that we would pick up that spoon of the means of grace to devour them, Lord, that we would be strengthened. Lord, I pray for each one in this room. Maybe there are some who are feeling burned out right now. Lord, I pray that your grace would empower them and lift them up right now, even today, Lord. Would you bring the healing grace that they need? Lord, I pray if there are those who have been burned out and just not even realized it yet because they're still um, just engulfed in the ongoing busyness and they haven't even reached a point of realizing the weight of it, Lord, I pray for your sustaining grace. Lord, I pray that you would um, just wake them up to their need for your grace and your strength. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters who have been filled with grace recently, who are walking in power and strength. Lord, every time you fill us, it is to be emptied out. And so I pray that we would be eagerly looking for those opportunities to be spilled out on your behalf. Lord, that we would be searching, listening to you, and waiting to know where am I supposed to give of myself for others? Lord, how do you want me to give everything for you today? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to see? Who do you want me to talk to? Lord, let my life uh, be, as the song says, the proof of your love. So Lord, I just lift up my family to you this morning. Lord, come again and give us fresh grace. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you, Lord. As we dismiss, um, I just want to say, like, I had the picture earlier of the Lord washing the feet of his disciples. And if you need the ministry of prayer, like, I am eager to, to do the washing of your feet, so to speak, in prayer. So if you need prayer, if you need grace, if you need strength, please don't leave without being prayed for. I would love to pray for you. And so may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. And may he give you joy and peace and strength and grace as you leave. In Jesus' name, grace and peace.